Welcome to the Theological Touchpoints Podcast. I'm Julian. The focus for this episode is Foundations, Theology for the Everyday Anabaptist. The doctrine of the canon of Scripture addresses the question of how we can know what is included in the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Scriptures. All Scripture is God-breathed, but how do we know which writings are from God and which have been contrived by man? Certain principles can be used to gauge whether or not historical writing deserves a place in the biblical canon. In this second episode, we will be talking about the general principles that frame our understanding of the canon of Scripture. We will begin by looking at three foundational ideas relating to the canon of Scripture and follow that up in the next episode by looking at four principles of canon. So first, three ideas that are foundational to our understanding of the canon of Scripture. The first thing we must keep in mind coming into this discussion is that the Bible sets the expectation of canon. Again, when we're speaking of the canon of Scripture, we're speaking of those books that are recognized to be the Word of God. The Bible itself sets the expectation that God's Word will be written, that those writings will be assembled, and those writings will be preserved for Uh, Christ's church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, as Ephesians 2.20 says, and the church grows on that foundation. That is, the church is what it should be only when it is built on the foundation of what the apostles and prophets taught. The teaching of the apostles and prophets is essential for the right formulation of ecclesiology, of a theology of the church. And how is the church to continue after the apostles are no longer living? If the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, or rather the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, how is the church to continue after the apostles are no longer alive to minister and to lead the church? Well, God preserved their teaching in written form in the Bible, and the church continues to be a biblical church, to be God's church when it is ordered according to the principles of Scripture. If we want to be a part of the same church that existed in the first century, we must be built on the same foundation. That foundation was laid by the apostles and prophets through the Spirit's inspiration in the written Word of God. The church's very existence is contingent on the existence of a preserved word, recognized and known to be God's very words to his people. These words are our New Testament canon. So again, the church is that organization built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, again, Ephesians 2, giving that reference. That foundation is laid by the apostles and the prophets in the writings of the New Testament, and it is expected then that those writings from God through his chosen spokespersons, uh, those writings will be preserved for the church, and in order for those writings to be preserved, we must know which writings are truly from God, which ones are not, and by that we, we arrive at this question of the canon of Scripture. How do we know whether or not a writing is truly from God? We must have principles by which we can determine that. And those principles, I believe, arise out of Scripture. They're not something we impose on Scripture, but they arise out of Scripture. Principles can be deduced by studying Scripture, and that's what we'll get into here later as we look at the principles of canon. But again, the Bible sets the expectation of canon. The Bible expects that God's 
word will be assembled, will be recognized as his people, will be preserved, and will continue to be fundamental to the life of God's church. So that's the first idea. The second idea to keep in mind as we move toward the principles of canon is that canon cannot be properly understood without recognizing God's providence. Our confidence in the 66 books we consider to be God's inspired word comes from a belief in God's providence. A natural explanation for the formulation of the canon is simply insufficient. Explanations that focus exclusively on the human aspect of the development of canon, things such as the preservation by individuals and and church councils and and some of those dynamics, Uh, explanations that focus on the human aspect, neglect necessary emphasis on God's sovereign hand. He is the one collecting and preserving his inspired word. So again, our understanding of canon assumes God's providential involvement. We believe that the books we have are God's words to us because we believe God not only inspired Scripture, but also ensured that His words would be preserved for His people throughout the church age. If God willed to reveal Himself to mankind, and He willed to do so through a written word, and He does so by inspiring His appointed spokesmen to write His words, it follows that He would be concerned that His words be preserved for coming generations. Put another way, God revealed himself in a written word. Would he then neglect that word to gather dust in a corner or rot in a waste heap? Surely not. The same God who inspired his word also preserved it for his people and led his people to recognize his word so they could collect it, study it, and pass it on to following generations. And I used a word in that last sentence that's very important for us to notice. God's people recognized his word. They recognize the canonicity of a writing. They do not assign canonicity. That is our third foundational idea. So, first of all, we must understand that the Bible sets the expectation of canon. Canon is not a human invention, nor is it a later invention, but the apostles themselves expected uh, the formulation of a written canon of, of God's word. Uh, secondly, canon cannot be properly understood without recognizing God's providence. And third, the church recognizes canonicity. It does not assign canonicity. The church recognizes canonicity. It does not assign canonicity. Now, some have posited the idea that the canon is a fabrication of the fourth century church. In the 4th century, the Council of Nicaea published a list of the books of the New Testament as we know it. This was the first official action of the Church that we know of to codify the New Testament canon. And some will say that this was a mere power play. These particular leaders selected certain books to be the official canon while neglecting others their rightful place. The idea is that there were more books that could have been included in the canon, but the bishops only selected the ones they liked or the ones that fit their own ideas of truth, uh, rather than embracing all of the possible writings. This is simply not true. Historically, it ignores the facts, but it also misunderstands the process of canon. So first, we must understand that a book is either inspired by God or it isn't. Its canonicity is determined by the giver of the word, not by those who receive it. Whether or not a book deserves a place in the canon depends on whether God inspired it or not. 
If he did, it is a part of his word. If not, it isn't. Seems simple, right? But this is unclear to many who study the canon. They see the canon as being the development of church leaders, not something intrinsic in the writings themselves. But we must understand that the canonicity of a writing depends first and foremost on its source. If it comes from God by way of inspiration through the apostles and prophets, then a writing deserves a place in the canon of the Word of God. So this approach of, of thinking of canon as being assigning uh, a otherwise ordinary book a place in the Word of God uh, is wrong first and foremost because we understand through Scripture that Scripture comes by inspiration of God. God wrote His Word. God wrote the Bible. And uh, if it came from God, it, it's a part of His Word. And if it didn't, it doesn't. And so it's it's our responsibility to recognize the characteristics of a of a a writing that is truly from God, um, but we can't change whether or not a writing has come from God. We can, again, uh, merely recognize it. So the first reason why seeing a canon is just the fabrication of the church is wrong is uh, because it understand it, because that understanding uh, misses the fact that books that deserve a place in the canon deserve that place because God has written it, and that's a fact that is true about the writing or is not true about a writing, and that is something that cannot be changed by those who are examining them and attempting to apply uh, canonicity or recognize the canonicity of a book. Uh, Secondly, if we trace the development of the New Testament canon, uh, the Church's collection of the inspired writings, we discover that the four Gospels had been collected into one volume by the end of the first century, a mere 40 years or so after they were written. Uh, This in contrast to those who say the canon was fabricated in the fourth century by the Catholic Church. The Church in the first century had already recognized these Gospels as being inspired by God, worth studying, worth preserving, worth hanging on to, and uh, within, again, within 30 or 40 years after these Gospels were written, they were already circulating as a unit among the churches of God. Likewise, the 13 letters of Paul were being shared among the churches as one unit. These were understood by the first century church to be from God for them to be received as God's inspired word to them. All 27 books were received by an early church leader by A.D. 170. So very early on in the church's development, we have the collection of the writings of the apostles into one unit that was uh, distributed as the Word of God uh, for God's people to study and learn from and grow in and grow in their relationship in God uh, through that Word. So as I said, an early church leader recognized all 27 books uh, that we have in our our modern canon by AD 170. This is just over 100 years after uh, these books were written. Now, you may say 100 years seems like a long time to assemble God's Word. Uh, If they were written, it seems like they should have uh, recognized and assembled it much faster than that. But four factors help us understand why it took uh, over 100 years to assemble uh, the canon of Scripture. First, we need to remember that copying books was a difficult process. Copying an entire New Testament would take a scribe 12 to 18 months, and now that would be Matthew to Revelation, uh, more writing than just a few letters, but as God's Word was collated, it took more and more work to uh, create more copies 
of Scripture for other churches to use. That means copies were difficult to come by. A church may only have one copy of the Word of God, and a lot of these churches probably didn't have every piece of of what we now call, uh, consider, the Word of God. And and naturally, churches weren't quick to part with their only copy, and, and this copy got used uh, so copies wore out, and it was difficult to create more copies, and so uh, th- there weren't just a plethora of of scrolls laying around that could be used and distributed to other churches uh, so that the Word of God can be assembled into one recognized book. Well, obviously, no copying machines, no printing presses, nothing like that, and uh, none of the high-volume production that we're used to today in being able to quickly create multiple copies of written books. Uh, so copying books is a difficult process that slowed down the collection of the Word of God, the collation of the Word of God. A second, the copies were written from various locations across the Middle East and sent to various locations as well. The writings of our New Testament were not all written from the same location. They were not all sent to the same location. Uh, they were written as letters, so they were sent to a church in a specific location. And uh, again, it takes time for church for the church in Corinth to uh, share their letter with the church in Ephesus, and for the church in Ephesus to share that letter back with the church of Corinth, for copies to be made, and for the Word of God to spread to all of the churches through uh, the Middle East through Asia Minor. A third factor to consider, transportation was slow. All copies had to be transported by foot or by animal or perhaps by, by cart at times, but uh, it took a long time to move a copy from one city to another. Um, ships would have also been used for transportation. And so it took a while for the distribution of the books to happen, for the different letters to uh, be spread across the church and uh, for copies of the Bible as we know it, to be assembled. And the fourth factor, the early church experienced much persecution. This meant not only that copies of the New Testament would be destroyed, but also that they couldn't make use of the common means of copying and distributing writings. A person suspected of being a Christian couldn't just go to the neighborhood copyist and have them make copies of uh, whatever portions of Scripture they had, because obviously that would expose them as believers, and and so that also would limit the copying and distribution of the Word of God. God, in His grace, did see that uh, the writings He had inspired were preserved, were copied, and were collected, and within a hundred years or so, all of the writings that make up what we now know as the New Testament uh, were uh, recognized and were beginning to be uh, assembled into a single manuscript containing all the New Testament So that's the second reason it is incorrect to see the canon as merely a fabrication of the church. The third reason is that that approach misunderstands the process of canonicity itself. The principles of canon are not principles developed by the church independent of any examination of Scripture, but are actually developed as a result of looking at Scripture. These principles are not imposed upon certain books. They arise from Scripture. They are intrinsic not extrinsic. They are not a later set of principles developed by church leaders in order to elevate certain books while sidelining other equally qualified books. Rather, these principles arise from the concept of Scripture as God's written revelation and from Scripture itself, that is, those things which Scripture teaches us. So again, we do not create canon, we recognize it. Each portion of Scripture was fully divine the moment it was written, When we evaluate the canonicity of a writing, we are not assigning divine inspiration to an otherwise ordinary book. We are recognizing those 
that are already divine. So again, just to review, we have three foundational ideas as we think about a canon. Uh, first, the Bible sets the expectation of canon. The Bible itself sets the stage for the development of the New Testament canon, of a collection of recognized writings uh, from the apostles that are authoritative in the church. Uh, secondly, canon cannot be properly understood without recognizing God's providence. We see God's involvement in the writing of Scripture, and uh, and so we also expect that, and we see that in the preservation of Scripture and the compilation of Scripture uh, as well. Um, third, the Church recognizes canonicity. It does not assign canonicity. We have no authority to ascribe divine authority to a book, but when a book speaks with God's divine authority, we are able to accurately recognize that and say, this book speaks for God. We've covered three foundational ideas related to canon. In the next episode, we will move into the next part of our discussion, the four principles of canon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Touchpoints podcast. This podcast is a production of Sword and Trumpet Ministries. For more information, visit swordandtrumpet.org slash podcast or theologicaltouchpoints.com slash podcast. If you have thoughts or questions, you can contact us at podcast at theologicaltouchpoints.com. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it.